0: Giselle Campbell had been killed. Music icon, Queen Diva, much beloved chartreuse, dead in her locked dressing room minutes before she was due to go on stage. Cause of death? Blunt force trauma to the parietal area of the skull. In other words, hit with something hard on the back of her head.
1: Hello and welcome to this episode of Season 3 of Ear Movies Murder about One of the nice things about ear movies is choosing the people I work with. Some you've heard of and others are personal acquaintances who I know will do a good job. So it was with Michael Bates. He's better known as a teacher and a director. His short film, The Projectionist, has been seen around the world. Not surprisingly, it's pretty good. But I've always loved his voice and he's done some radio previously. I think you'll like him as the elderly detective on the case of an impossible murder at the Sydney Opera House. I hope you enjoy God Save the Queen.
0: God Save the Queen chess inspector. I ignored the man in front of me. The door to the dressing room was closed. A uniformed officer stood outside. I glanced again at the incident report or what little was written on it. Without being conscious of it I sighed. I'd applied for a transfer out of homicide six months earlier. I'd recently heard it had been approved. Now it was only a matter of time until a position opened up in the Prosecution's command. I like the idea of being the police representative in court. For now, though, another murder. This one had very little to go on. But there was notoriety. A mountain load of notoriety. I hated notoriety. Giselle Campbell had been killed. Music icon, queen, diva, much-beloved chartreuse, dead in her locked dressing room minutes before she was due to go on stage. Cause of death? Blunt forced trauma to the parietal area of the skull. In other words, hit with something hard on the back of her head. No murder weapon evident. The man in front of me was her husband, Gordon Campbell, also her manager. In 30 years of policing, I learned repeatedly not to trust my instincts. Right now, they were all screaming at me that Gordon was the killer. But Gordon had 1,500 witnesses who'd seen him at the time of her death when he'd been on stage talking before the show, praising Giselle and building up her final performance. If that wasn't enough, I myself had been one of them. Me and my partner, Jess, had tickets for Giselle's final performance on the Opera Theatre stage of the Sydney Opera House. It was why I was here. I'd phoned Lisa and she'd give me the go-ahead to take the case, or at least start it. I'd be handing it on soon enough. In the meantime, it made sense to give it to the bloke on the scene. I turned to Gordon. Mr. Campbell, do you want to tell me what happened? Gordon looked over at me and smiled. God, he's oily, I thought. Again, my instincts screamed at me. I came off stage and met up with Phoebe and Greg, just as planned. Everyone had lined up to celebrate her last hurrah. But something was wrong, I asked. Yes, she wasn't answering her door. A piece of crime scene tape had dropped off the lintel. I pointedly stuck it back up. The door was locked. I had the only key, he said. That was the arrangement. Go on, I said. Well, I opened it. I took a quick look in. It was horrible, Inspector. He spoke plainly. He wasn't upset, I thought. His wife, his only client, on her last show had been found dead, and he wasn't emotional about it. How did you feel when you saw her? I asked. Gordon shook his head. I don't know. I'm still numb. Shock, I expect. Affects us all in different ways, doesn't it? It doesn't seem real. I glanced at the door again. And that's when you called us, I asked. Gordon nodded. Well, I asked the stage manager to call you. Phoebe and Greg were a mess. Who are Phoebe and Greg? Her dresser and the company manager. Where are they now, I asked. I sent them home. They'll both be wrapped around a good chin by now if they have any sense. Forensics had said they'd be at least half an hour. I nodded to the two uniformed officers and they nodded back. I put on some gloves and pushed the crime scene tape aside. I slowly opened the door. Inside I found pretty much what you'd expect from a dressing room. Low lighting, a slight smell of makeup and sweat overridden with cologne, racks of clothes, vases of flowers. What was unusual was the body of a large woman who was slumped forward. The back of a head was caved in. Blood oozed. There was no other word for it. I went over and took a pulse. I knew it was futile, but it was also routine and expected. No heartbeat, of course. She was still warm. I stepped back towards the door, nothing that looked like the murder weapon. I wondered what it had been. Narrow and metal, I guessed, a single solid, determined blow. Whomever was responsible was not suspected by the deceased. Unlikely someone had entered and surprised her. She was sitting and didn't appear to have moved when the killer had approached. She hadn't believed she was in danger. Then she'd be left there while the killer departed, locking the door behind them. My phone buzzed. It was Jess. I didn't answer but sent a text instead, saying I'd be stuck there for a while waiting for forensics and to go home without me. I hoped it wouldn't cause another row. I closed the door firmly behind me. As I did so, I felt a strange chill. My instincts reached for me again, but I shrugged them away. I preferred logic and deduction to feelings. Jess was in bed by the time I got home. There was a new bottle of whiskey on the counter and a glass. Jess is so thoughtful. I was wired, of course, and wouldn't be ready for sleep for ages yet. It was always like this with a new murder. Thoughts whirling around as they try to connect into a logical flow. And always, at the end, someone standing there with a gun or a knife or a rope or a car or a hand, or as in tonight's case, a blunt instrument. I was looking forward to seeing the forensic pathologist's report. I hoped it would throw more light on what had been used. It had to be long enough to provide good weight and good leverage as it was moved rapidly downward, narrow enough that it could cave in Giselle's skull, and small enough it could be concealed, presumably blood-soaked, and move through the interior of the opera house without anyone noticing. It could be put in a bag, of course, but it still had to be reasonably compact. I'd seen a tyre iron used once to kneecap someone, It was a similar dimension. About half a metre long, about five centimetres wide, one deep. It'd do the job, no problem. I opened the glass door and went out to the balcony. The night was warm. We lived on the third floor of a small place in Woolloomooloo. We'd bought at the right time. A few more years and my super would give me enough to retire on. The DPP would be a nice staging post on the way. Sure, it wouldn't be as interesting as detective work, but it wouldn't have the politics either. I'd been hauled off too many cases I thought needed more work. All in the name of expediency and budget caps. Sometimes I suspected corruption. For now, I was happy to be moving sideways. Jess wanted to work a bit longer too before selling the business. Then we were going to kick back and travel before the inevitable move to the coast. Up or down from Sydney, we hadn't decided yet. Retirement would make things easy. We'd been fighting a bit. Not full-on blazing rows, but enough arguments to make things unpleasant. A constant mood of reconciliation which I'd grown tired of. I don't think Jess liked it any more than I did, but we'd gotten into a pattern, you see. I was fire and Jess was ice. That could be good sometimes. Jess would rouse me up and I'd be the calming one. We should have been incompatible, but we'd managed for over 20 years. Sometimes, though, and too often lately, bang. It's not a perfect analogy. I went back to the opera house in the morning. Possibly I could have gone to the office and reviewed the paperwork instead, but I knew there wouldn't be much in yet. And who doesn't enjoy that walk by Circular Quay and along to Bennelong Point? I got there at eight and forensics had been on the job all night. Megan Anderson was officer in charge and she met me outside the door. She shook her head. We've got bugger all, she said. Prince of Giselles, Gordons, Phoebes and Greg Kenways. Only the people we expected, no others. There's nothing that could be used as a murder weapon. Any DNA? Well, there always is, isn't there, she said. We've had some strands of hair, some tissues, a glass. We're not anticipating anything, though. All are consistent with the crime scene being used as a dressing room. I thanked her. I recognised Marcus, the opera company director, hovering nearby. I introduced myself. I remember you from last night, he said. How's it going? I can't really comment, I said. It's way too early, but it's an unusual case. If he wasn't standing in front of a full theatre at the time it happened, I'd put my money on bloody Gordon, Marcus said. Horrible, spiteful little man. I suppose I shouldn't say that about someone who's grieving, but there it is, I've said it now. Stupid question, I know, I said, but how far is the stage from here? I'll show you, he said. We walked a short maze to an elevator. This is the OP lift, he said. It comes up on the opposite prompt side of the stage. Have you ever been involved in theatre? Not since school, I said, but we were in the audience last night, as you know, and Jess, my partner, has done a bit over the years. We got out of the lift. I expected the set for Tosca. Instead, we stepped into something that looked more like a factory. There were people and bits of scenery moving and lights everywhere. Setting up for Salome, Marcus explained. As if to confirm this, a stagehand walked past carrying the head of a woman stuck on the end of a long pike. What a charming place to work, I thought. Twice a day this happens, he said, indicating the chaos around us. We set up for a rehearsal in the morning, then take it down mid-afternoon and set for the show that evening. Tonight will be Cosi Fan Monster of a bloody set, that one is. He led me around the back of the stage. We walked past a bank of rope pulleys. Around us there were people shouting, screw guns fastening things in place, people with big wicker skips pulling out bits of scenery and props. We came to a small desk at the side of the stage. This is the prompt corner, Marcus said. It's where the ASM sits and calls the show. Assistant stage manager, he explained. I looked across the stage. Gordon had stood there the previous night, about five metres from where we were. Gordon was clearly visible from here? I asked. Actually, no. He spoke on the stage before the curtain went up, so he was out of sight of the ASM, although she could see him on the monitors, of course. I looked down at the empty seats. There's something not quite right about a theatre with no audience, is there? he said. Marcus walked me back through the green room and downstairs to the stage door. Don't hesitate to call me if you need anything, he said. I shook his hand, thanked him, and walked outside. From the relative dimness of the stage, out near the water, the light was so intense that it hurt my eyes. It was a warm morning, but once again I felt a chill pass over me. I'm not a superstitious person. But it didn't feel right to be out in the sun and feel this cold. My office voicemail had three messages from Phoebe Callahan, Giselle's dresser and PA. Each one asked to see me and each one sounded more urgent than the last. I called her back and she said she'd come straight in. I entered some details into Giselle's case management system as I waited. Then, because I couldn't do this with every Vic, I googled her. Giselle was born to emigrant parents. Her father had come to Australia from southern Italy and worked on the Snowy Hydro scheme before settling down in the Illawarra. Her mother had actually been married to her father in what was known as a proxy wedding before she'd even arrived here. By all accounts, it was a happy union. Giselle and her three brothers and a sister hadn't thrived academically, but Giselle had a passion for music. By three, she was giving family concerts. She sang in front of a paying audience for the first time when she was six. Her parents found money for lessons. None of the family minded, making sacrifices to take her to competitions and performances. She was moving towards pop when she met Sofia Belgrando the former soprano for the Australian Opera. She had a tiny studio among the trees of the Illawarra Escarpment. Under Sophia's guidance, Giselle discovered opera. She won more and more competitions. She began to be talked about by people who knew, that was, until she met Matthew Carter. He dragged her back towards pop music, where she had her only hit, the unforgettable Wiggle Wiggle. She was 17 when it hit the charts, where it stayed at number one for what seemed like forever. She and Matthew were an item. He became her manager. Then the photos came out of her with a black eye. She backed away from both Matthew and Pop. She found solace once again in classical music. I suppose she wasn't the first, but she had a tough decision to make, and in the end she chose opera. She left Australia for stints in New York, Milan and Paris. Her reputation grew, as did the size of her roles. By the time she returned to Australia in her 30s, she was famous. Wiggle Wiggle was all but forgotten. She had a couple of minor hits with some crossovers and guest appearances. That was the late 80s, when such things were still possible. She had some roles in a couple of films. She wasn't the greatest actress in the world, but she wasn't the worst either. She was soon back in the headlines and treading red carpets like royalty. She was alone for the most part, or with Phoebe. The time with Matthew had scarred her. She became known for her philanthropy. She began with one of her brothers who started using drugs. She supported a halfway house in Wollongong where he was getting help. She didn't skite about her charity work. She quietly set up a foundation, worked hard to solicit funds and supplemented them with her own money. She was still what you'd call a quiet achiever. A fitting title for a princess, perhaps. Then she met Gordon Campbell. He was a brash, arrogant shock jock. On paper, there was nothing to connect them. She claimed an undeniable chemistry, though, and married him in one of the 90s' most memorable and scandalous weddings. You would have seen the photos. A fleet of helicopters and fast cars, an A-list to die for, Anyone and everyone, actors, politicians, crooks, musicians, all the rich and famous the city could muster, and quite a few besides. A paparazzi yacht had capsized, losing three. We're more callous in those so recently post-Diana days. I don't think anyone really minded that they died. The rumours about Gordon grew, but he was a master of keeping anything negative out of the press. His cocaine habit, which was rumoured to cost thousands a week. Allegations of a hit and run which left its victim in a coma and ultimately killed her, although it was never proved that he was driving. His outrageous comments on the radio as he skirted with sexism, racism and the right wing. There was rumour after rumour of affairs. Like a fairy story, Giselle, now the Queen, seemed to remain above it all the gossip magazines had her living in separate rooms from Gordon, practically separate lives. She remained aloof from his scandals. She supported him publicly and, in so doing, became the heroine of her own operatic tragedy. We were the chorus, watching her up there on the battlements, praying she wouldn't jump, and loving her all the more. You do, don't you? Phoebe Callahan, sir. Bring her up, I said. I didn't need to read the rest of the article to know the end of the story. The separations and reconciliations, the prenup he was challenging as his own finances collapsed, the decision for her final tour, a swan song, her public statements of support for Gordon, and that one photo of her sitting next to him in their car, tears streaming down her otherwise impassive face while he looked the other way, smiling and waving. It was the picture that undid all the spin. The truth of the carnage. You could practically draw the strings from his hands, binding her, and attempting to control her. And you knew it was the goodness she had, derived from all the nice things about her, that let her love him still, while we'd long given up and felt only the opposite of love for him. Hello, Ms Callahan. She'd been crying, her face was makeup free and her eyes were red and swollen. I offered her a tissue. The gesture must have triggered her. She cried more, trying to control herself. The more she tried, the more impossible it became. I closed the door to my office. I thought about hugging her. I would have 10 years ago, but we don't do that anymore. Instead, I went back to my desk and waited for her to stop. The grief subsided although it never truly left the whole time we sat together. He killed her. Gordon killed her, I'm certain, she said as soon as she had the capacity for speech. Do you have any proof, I asked. I would love some proof, I thought. No, she said, but come on, who else would it be? He hated her. She was divorcing him. He was going to be left with nothing, well, nothing by his standards, which would still be quite a lot to the rest of us, but she was going, and he couldn't stand that. He hated it when she wasn't in his control. She dabbed at her eyes. Tell me what happened at the opera house, I said. She looked at me, then began to speak. Her voice was quiet, and I had to ask her more than once to talk more loudly. My hearing is not what it used to be. It was the same as always, she said. There was only me and Gordon in her dressing room. That's all she'd ever allowed before a show. And Greg Kenway. She'd taken a liking to Greg. He'd directed her and now he was part of the inner circle. Gordon hated, absolutely hated that. He knew she was slipping away from him and Greg being allowed there was further proof. I think he was wondering how long it'd be before Greg replaced him and he was banished from court entirely. It didn't matter that Greg was camp as a row of tents. Giselle had love for him and was losing it by the bucketful for Gordon. What about you, Miss Callahan? Did she have love for you too? A look like a knife thrown by a circus performer right between my eyes. We were like sisters, Mister Morrison—blood sisters, the truest of friends, confidants, everything one woman can be to another who is not a lover. I didn't have to ask her to speak up when she said this. "'Go on,' I said. Gordon was particularly vile that evening. Giselle was becoming distressed. Greg is a gentleman in every sense of the term, but you could see he was building up with every put-down and hurtful remark Gordon threw at Giselle. It was so unnecessary. I've known Giselle forever, from other lives probably, and she loved Gordon, all Gordon had to do was be nice. That was it. Be nice, and she'd have stayed with him. But he couldn't do it. He had to carp and criticise to take her money to be, well, to, to be Gordon. He was running her trust down, both of them actually, how much she believed in him, and the charitable foundation she has. He knew the curtain was falling on their relationship, and he hated that. He hated that more than I've seen anyone hate anything. And I've worked in theatre all my life, so I've seen my share of hatred, let me tell you. What happened next? I asked. Giselle had a pre-show routine. We all knew how it went. She had one small ouzo, then she had to be alone in order to prepare mentally. She had to be undisturbed. She said she had to feel that physically as well as mentally, which is why she wanted the door closed. Everyone in the company knew about it, so we left, locking her in behind us. Who had the key? Normally it was Greg. Last night Gordon made a big fuss about it and in the end Greg practically threw the key at him. Can you think of anyone besides Gordon who'd want her dead? nuh No one, she said. She was loved by all. You know that. She was an angel on earth. There was only one person who would do that to her. I was in the audience, as you know, I said. I saw him on stage right at the time Giselle was locked in her dressing room. Phoebe nodded. So what happened next? Gordon did his little tribute speech, part saccharine and part claims of emotions he doesn't have, and affection he's not capable of. You heard it. What did you think? Not for me to judge, I said, but yes, it sounded like insincere flattery to me. To the whole world, she said. I thought she was going to cry again, but she brought her tears under control. We met again outside her door at the 15. That's when the stage manager calls 15 minutes before the start of the show, she explained. This was her final performance, so we had yet more flowers. The chorus had formed an honour guard to the lift. It was everyone, actually. The stage crew, just about anyone who worked in the opera house, I'd say. Probably more. Greg had us all lined up. He and I were at the head of the queue. We expected her to emerge to walk between us. It was going to be quite special. Instead, that preening, twitching lowlife who was a husband pushed into the line about halfway along its length. He sniggered, there's no other word for it, as he walked towards the dressing room. Like all the adulation was for him. I like to think we were all glaring at him. I doubt he noticed. Then, then he reached the door. It was like he was making a show of finding the key. He fumbled around in his pockets for it. We were expecting her to walk out, her preparation for the role complete. A tragic heroine inside and out, shining in a blaze of unadulterated glory. She collapsed. This time her sobs were uncontrollable. The grief was tangible. Eventually I rose from my desk and walked to her. Despite the rules, I pulled her up and put my arms around her. She fell onto my shoulders, huge, racking, heaving sobs. I don't know if I've ever seen sadness like it. I felt her tears soaking through my shirt. Then she drew back. I think she was drawing strength from the power of her relationship with Giselle. She wanted to honour her by reaching the end of the story. Gordon opened the door with a flourish. It was a performance, Inspector. I've seen enough performances in my life to recognise one when I saw it. He knew what we were going to find. He alone of the hundreds of us knew she was dead, slumped in a chair with a hole in the back of her beautiful, wonderful, magical, irreplaceable head. She fell back onto me, exhausted. I think she was too frightened to cry now. I think she was scared that if she started crying again, she would never be able to stop. Hannah smiled when she saw me. I smiled back as she led me into the morgue. I gave her the flowers. Steal them from a grave, she joked. We laughed. Busy morning, I asked. Yeah, but not for the usual reasons, she said. The usual reasons were her skills in the art of delayed hepatomancy. We joked about this once. The ancients had examined the organs of deceased animals to determine the future. Hannah and her friends did it to explore the past. I'm guessing you've had a few phone calls, I said. She nodded and pointed. I saw her phone was off the hook. Inquiry after inquiry about Giselle. It's not like we tell them anything before the coroner's report is released. So many are friends, though, so they expect more. I smiled. Hannah had lots of friends. Different for you, though, she said, being police, I mean. It's also why I visited, I said, and didn't just use the telephone. She found a urine bottle in a cupboard and blew some dust of it. She half-filled it with water and put the flowers I'd given her in it. They looked a bit strange coming out of it at a 45-degree angle instead of being upright, but I had to admit it did the job. Hannah was very practical. She smiled again. Beautiful, she said. She led me to the cold room and dragged out a shelf. She unzipped the body bag on it down to the neck level. There was no need to go any further. There was the frozen face of the woman I'd seen the night before. I had a quick look last night, I explained. You'll have seen the marked depression in her skull then, she said. One blow from behind, quite forceful. There was anger in it, I'd say, but control as well. I've seen deeper when they really let go and I've seen greater quantities when they're intending to make quite sure. This was deliberate, in that whomever did it meant to kill her and knew they'd done the job. This isn't an accident gone wrong, something on the spur of the moment during a fight. You think Giselle felt it? I asked. Who knows? Hannah said, sipping the bag back up. Death was instantaneous, if that's what you're asking. "'I wonder if she knew the killer was there,' I said. "'If so, it had to be someone she trusted. "'No sign of movement, fear or struggle. "'That's what I thought,' I said. "'We were back out in the work area. "'She nodded towards the empty table behind the glass in another room. Autopsy scheduled for 11. "'Not expecting to find anything new, but I'll give you a call if I do.' "'I said goodbye and started to walk out the door.' Thank you for my flowers, she said in a baby voice, smiling. I shut the door and again the chill feeling hit me. I thought it might have been something from the air conditioning, a draught escaping from the morgue, but I could see the door was clearly sealed. It was quiet, but then I heard the faintest of sounds. A woman, wailing, or singing a long way off. Very strange, Greg Kenway was checking me out. I'd grown used to it over the years. Part of me liked it. I dressed well and kept myself fit. He smiled, and I knew he knew I knew what he was doing. Also that I wasn't offended by it. I needed to shut it down before it went any further, though. Thanks for agreeing to meet, I said. I sipped the tea he'd given me. I don't know why I'd accepted it. The only person who makes tea the way I like is Jess. Greg drained his cup pretty quickly. Mine was still full. I always gulp them, he explained. Never know when I'm going to be called to the stage. I don't suppose you're any closer to working out who did it, he asked. I shook my head. To be honest, I couldn't tell you if I did know, I said. Not at this stage. We're still eliminating suspects. Oh, am I a suspect, he asked. He looked pretty pleased about it. Only in that you were there last night. Can you give us a few details about what happened, I asked. I put my cup down on the table. It was still half full, but I was done with it. Not much to tell, he said. We locked Giselle in the dressing room. I hung around for a while. I can't stand Gordon, and no way was I going to honour him by listening to his speech. I had to keep an eye on things, so I went to the GR and watched from the monitor. Green room. He explained, where we all wait. I know what a green room is, I said. He grinned. There's no audio, so I was chatting to a couple of people. I can give you their names if you want. I saw Gordon leave the stage and I went back down the corridor. I met Phoebe, who was coming from the opposite direction. We organized the honor guard. Gordon joined us and opened the door, and I knew the rest. I've heard the CCTV, I said. Both ends of the corridor, he said. He took me to the security office and there was lots of self-important huffing and puffing as they found the relevant footage. We saw two views of Gordon, Phoebe and Greg, leaving the dressing room. Giselle came to the door and gave Phoebe a peck on the cheek before going back inside. Gordon almost seemed to flourish the key as he locked the door. A trickle of people in costume or black clothing wandering up and down the corridor... Then the return of Greg and Phoebe, the honour guard. Then Gordon and the door opening, Phoebe and Gordon rushing in, Greg rushing away. I ran for security, he said. I asked for a copy of the footage and there was more self-importance as a USB was found. My one theory was that the three of them were in it together and that Giselle had had her head caved in prior to them leaving the dressing room. Phoebe would have to have been one hell of an actor, but who knew? Maybe she'd picked up the skills over the years or something. But it would have placed them all in the room to give an opportunity for the murder to occur. But Giselle had come out. We could clearly see that it was her. She'd given Phoebe that kiss. She was clearly still alive at that point. Greg walked me to the stage door. Any ideas, he asked. I shook my head. I saw him check me out again, a quick glance from my shoes to the top of my head. I smiled at him. Call me if you need anything, Inspector, he said. Thanks, I said. You've been very helpful. I felt his eyes on me as I walked away. It's nice to be desired, I thought, even if you have no intention to follow through with anything. I had texts from Lisa to come back to the office, so I took a cab to Goulburn Street. The press is all over this, she said. The media unit wants something. Anything. What can we give them? I shook my head. We've got nothing, boss, I said. Nothing's changed since last night. Chief suspect was standing in front of 1,500 people. The victim was behind a locked door. Forensics have gone over the room, but there's no other means of access. There's footage of the Vic being alive when the last people to see her locked the door behind them. Lisa was staring at me intently. I'm stumped, I admitted. I've got bugger all. I'm pulling in the surge team, she said. There has to be something we've overlooked. Is there any way she could have done it to herself? We can't even locate the murder weapon, I said. Look, just tell them we have ongoing inquiries. Releasing info at this stage would jeopardise the investigation, all that kind of crap. She shook her head. We need more, Gerald, she said. The press is screaming for something, anything. I'm talking to Gordon in an hour, I said. Maybe I'll have something for you then. You want anyone with you? She asked. No, I said. I'd prefer to do this myself. Okay, she told me. After that, though, the Surge team's taking over the whole investigation. Mel's as keen as mustard. She's welcome to it, I said. Send her to the Opera House to talk to Phoebe, to Greg, anyone she likes, and Gordon after I've done the initial. I went back to my desk and went over my notes. Maybe I'd missed something. I saw nothing. I rang to see if there'd been an update from the crime scene. Nothing there either. I went outside. Another warm afternoon. I went to the parking lot and found my car. Then again, cold, like I was caught in a downdraft. Really, really cold, icy cold. I couldn't shake it no matter where I moved. I heard the noise again. A woman, crying. I'm not a superstitious person, but this was undeniably strange. As suddenly as it began, the strangeness stopped. I heard normal sounds again. The temperature became warm. I started the car. On a whim, I looked in the mirror. The faintest glimpse of something that seemed to vanish as soon as I saw it, like smoke dispersing. I drove away, but not before I turned back around again to check. I saw nothing. Giselle and Gordon's place was a mansion on the side of the harbour in Point Piper. It was gated. I introduced myself at the intercom and went slowly along the short driveway and into the large garage. I half expected a butler to emerge, but I saw only Gordon. He hadn't bothered to get dressed for our interview. Instead, he was wearing a bathrobe. His wife had just died, but it wasn't as if any part of him appeared grief-stricken. Quite the opposite, if anything. Find us all right? He asked. I nodded. He led me inside. I've been around. Seen a few places in my line of work. Nothing like this, though. Palatial. Huge expanses of white marble floor, artwork, designer décor. Not a bad pad, is it? He said, obviously noticing my reaction. It's amazing, I said. I followed him into the kitchen. He was making a coffee. I wasn't sure you'd want to talk today, I said. Happy to talk, he said. You've heard the rumours. The truth is, Giselle and I just weren't that close anymore. Doesn't mean I wanted her to meet a grisly end. But I'm not heartbroken either. He looked down into the top of his cup. Apparently satisfied, he grabbed the handle. I thought he might ask if I wanted one, but no. I followed him again, this time to the lounge. We looked at the view while he sipped loudly. What do you need to know? he asked. He wasn't looking at me. I don't know whether he felt superior or untouchable or uncaring or what, but I knew I was just an insect to him. Maybe most people were. Perhaps there are only a few of the rich and powerful you'd feel obliged to pay proper attention to. He'd taken out his phone and was scrolling. Is there anyone you can think of who wanted your wife dead? I asked. He glanced at me, then turned away. Me? He said, laughing. Solves a lot of problems for me, you see. No messy divorce, her assets all go to me, insurance payouts, no more insufferable arguments. So yes, I benefit. But as you know, I couldn't have done it. How I longed for a tangible clue, a speck of her blood on his collar, video footage, fingerprints, or a signed confession. Of course, none of those things were going to appear. But I've been in the job long enough and talked to so many suspects that I can tell when someone is lying. And he was lying. He'd done it. I knew the surge team would soon be on the case and that my role in the matter was nearly over. This meant I wouldn't be around if they solved it, arrested him, and the truth came out. I'd read it in the papers, like everyone else, how he'd contrived to kill her while simultaneously standing right in front of her eyes. That was if they worked it out. Somehow, I knew that was never going to happen. Anyone else with a motive, I asked, needing to continue the conversation. No, he said. As you know, she was universally loved. Adored, you'd say. It feels very strange to be in this position. Me, the person who is in the closest proximity, is also the one who grieves least. You've spoken to Phoebe, I imagine, he asked. I have, I said. Veritable bundle of blame and misery right now, I'm guessing, he said. She wanted to come up and collect some of G's things. I said no, of course. Last thing I want is her accusations. He slurped his coffee loudly. He suddenly looked up. Oh, did you want a cup? he asked. I didn't reply. I don't know if there's much more I can help you with, he said. I went through the usual routine, a list of questions about her movements, her contacts, just general background, really. I knew I was staring at her killer. I knew as well that he was going to get away with it. He leaned forward and picked up a chess piece from the table in front of him. A black knight. You don't play, do you? He asked. No, I said. Marvellous game. He tapped the side of his head with the piece. All up here, you see. If your plan is good enough, you'll always win, and doubly so against those who don't have a plan at all, of course, he said. (coughs) His phone rang. Without hesitating, he took the call. Hey, baby. Missing me? How's L.A.? It wasn't a platonic relationship. He glanced at me, then stood and walked onto the balcony, chatting away to his lover. I've seen my share of low life, that's for sure, but I don't think I'd ever seen a more detestable example. I could see him through the glass. He was smiling happily. His gestures were grand, as if his new partner was there beside him, and at one point as if he was actually stroking her. Was she a suspect, I wondered? Not if she was in the US. And I remember the CCTV vision again. No one had entered the dressing room. I gazed around the room. My eyes stopped on a stunning portrait of Giselle. I went over and looked at it closely. She was beautiful. Beautiful. Then I felt it again. The cold. The chill, stronger than I'd yet felt it. I looked up in case I'd wandered into the downdraft of the aircon. Nothing. Her voice then. Giselle's voice. A lamentation that started as a song, part opera, part a glimpse of heaven, but one with a revelation of pain built to a more intense note, a scream. I saw her then. I swear I saw her face moving in the image in front of me, tears in her eyes, pleading with me silently, begging me, and then, not silent, three words, Gordon killed me. She dissolved like smoke, her words somehow hanging in the air longer than the vision of her. And then, nothing. Quiet again. Warm. Still. I went and sat down as Gordon slid back the balcony door and re-entered. Anything else you need? he asked. I shook my head. You all right? You look pale. I'm fine, I told him. Well, I'm busy, he said. Got to get the lawyers onto selling this dump. Moving to California, he explained. See yourself out. He went back to the coffee machine. I made my way to the garage. My humble Mazda was parked next to his Bentley. Then I saw something. A tire iron perched on a shelf. The tire iron, I knew the one Gordon had somehow used to kill Giselle. There was a cloth just next to it, and I used this to take hold of it. I went back inside. He still had his back to me. I wondered if there was room for one more piece on his chessboard, one that represented judge, jury, and executioner. That was it, really. I went back home and found solace with Jess. I did a few years as a police prosecutor, then, once Jess sold the business, we scarpered for Port Macquarie. Fifteen years later, we're still here. Retirement bliss. We don't fight anymore. Sometimes I think back to that last case. I never worked out how Gordon had done it. How he'd managed to kill her while seemingly appearing on stage at the same time. He's dead now too, of course, so most likely no one will ever know. I haven't seen any other ghosts, either, if that's what it was. Perhaps I just went mad for a little while. A transient insanity, just long enough to believe the vision in front of me was real. That it was begging for help. Asking for justice when no justice would be possible for a man who was just too clever. I've never killed anyone else, before or since. I've just walked up behind him. Is this what you used? I asked. He looked around. I could see he wasn't upset by my accusation. Even if it was, there's nothing to link it to Giselle's death, he said. Everyone saw me on that stage, Inspector. He wasn't bothered by my question. Didn't care a jot. He wasn't even smirking. He left the tire iron out to taunt me, I realised to stake his claim on superiority. To show his dick was bigger than mine or whatever counted as disdain in his world. He didn't say anything else. Instead, he just turned back to his damn coffee machine. Without a thought, I brought the tire iron down on the back of his head as hard as I could. He collapsed. I didn't bother to feel for a pulse. I knew he was dead. I left the tire iron there, buried in his brain. I took the cloth I'd wrapped around it, though. I went back to the garage and got in my car. I drove slowly back to the office, wondering if I'd get away with it. On the way, I let the cloth drop out the window. Gordon wasn't discovered for a couple of days. The papers loved it. The headlines screamed. The main suspect had been killed as mysteriously as the victim. Theories abounded. Experts went on about it for days on the TV and radio. No one could figure out what happened. The internet was a frenzy of conspiracy theories. A couple of books were written, half a dozen podcasts. There was talk of a movie that was never made because no one could figure out what happened. I was never a suspect in any of them. After all, my fingerprints and DNA were meant to be at the house. The time between my visit and the discovery of his body left ample opportunity for others to have been there. The mystery of it all was a mirror of the death of his wife. Beyond rudimentary questions like, what time did you leave him? No one asked me anything more, and it's obvious now they never will. Why should they? Why would a long-serving, diligent, elderly police officer risk everything at that point of his career to kill someone? I wondered for a moment just after I'd done it and I was still in the house if I might see Giselle again. I even took a few steps towards her portrait. There was nothing there. I remember that until then, I hadn't been a supporter of capital punishment. I changed in that moment. I've reverted back, of course, so that once again, I'm not a fan of it. But I had to admit dealing with that level of callousness after a lifetime of callousness, I was a willing executioner in that one moment. The thing about blunt force trauma is you'll always win, doubly so for those who don't hear you coming up behind them. In many ways, it was the perfect crime.
1: reading god save the queen it was recorded on gadigal land at king sound studios in surrey hills sydney thanks nick and joe trevor brown did the music by did i mean composed and performed it incredible i should point out that i added the wiggle wiggle pop song excerpt as a sound effect it's something from my own archive hey i've been told it's really important to build subscribers so can you please like the show and follow it on whatever platform you're using to listen to it It'll make a big difference. Ear Movies are written and produced by me, Simon Luckhurst. Thanks for listening.